Here we go. Here we go. Welcome, everyone, to the Animal Chat Podcast with me, Matthew Payne. And me, Harry Ekman. You sound a little bit remote there, Matt. What's I'm going on location, on? guys. I am out on location. Where? Well, I'm not. Usually, I'm in a high tech studio. Um, so I'm out on location. My mum has been. Um, she had an operation recently. So what she had done? She's had a new hip. A new hip? What was wrong with the old one? I don't. I just don't think she liked it. You know, that's the trouble. Like this throwaway society. Yeah, I know. It's just kind of like I'm. I'm done with this hip. Yeah, I want a new one. Oh no, she's just racist against the hip she had. That's all it was. <laughs> <laughs> Is she doing okay though? Yeah, you know she's doing really well, really well. She's going around on her little crutches and just hobbling around, and she's doing really well. But just is she uh, hopping everywhere? Yeah, kind of, gently, gently she goes. So, but yeah, has she got a titanium hip? No, you know, ask her when I see it. I don't know. I think it's like I don't know what they bloody put in there. It could put anything in it. Maybe it's it's Lego, isn't it? It's made out of Lego. Maybe it's an environmental one that they make out of recycled packaging and. They put a couple of like <laughs> they've pulled out plastic wrap. from yeah. the oceans of Indonesia and yeah. fashioned it into a hip for yeah. your mum. Why don't they do that? Hey? Why don't they do that? I yeah. say, Harry. What? I ask you, why not? Yeah, I mean, they're making fashion items. Adidas they turn recycled material into clothes yeah. and trainers and sneakers and things like that. So why can't they just yeah. make something that isn't fashion related? Make a hip. Yeah. Why not? Maybe we've stumbled across the latest invention. That someone else will listen to this and go, oh, I'm going to steal that now. We could have earned gazillions. I think we could. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made in hips. Hey, hey Harry. Yeah, what? Ecobone. Call it Ecobone. Ecobone. That's yeah. brilliant. I love it. Ecobone. Do you care about the environment but still need a new hip? <laughs> well, guess what? Now you don't have to make a choice. You can care about the environment and not walk crippled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, she's doing very well, Harry. Thank you very much. How's COVID things where you are? Because things are changing over here rapidly. How are things with you? They've had weekend curfews here. So um, after, yeah, on Saturdays and Sundays and a couple of public holidays that are due to be coming up mm-hmm. uh, next week or mm-hmm. the week after, they are issuing a curfew of 1 p.m. So shops close, restaurants close. And okay. you basically need to go back home from 1 p.m. until like 5 a.m. the next morning. So after okay. 1 p.m., streets are dead here. Nobody's around. Everybody stays yeah. in. And yeah, they're hoping to knock it on the head or, you know, crush the wave or surf the, the vid or whatever the fuck. Like <laughs> every true scientist talks. Yeah, crush the wave, surf the yeah. vid, yeah. eviscerate the cove. I, I don't know what the terms are they're using these days. You're not days. a scientist, Harry. Why would you? Why would you? Don't put pressure on yourself like that. You don't need to. <laughs> You're putting undue stress on yourself. I know. Um, Trying to come up with all these media-friendly phrases. We've kind of got a bit weird situation because we're like what's happening in Wales isn't quite what's happening in England and Scotland and Northern Ireland. But the biggest news is that Boris has kind of lifted lockdown. Like, uh, 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 I'm lifting lockdown. <laughs> okay. And he's something about a tier system now. No one knows. Everyone's just going around wearing masks, going in shops that are open, grumbling about ones that aren't open. And I don't think people really know what's going on over here at the moment. It's been So basically you know, the same level of chaos that it's been for months. Yeah. Everywhere except New Zealand, where it appears they're just on the TV all the time, bragging over in New Zealand how well they've done. If you're living in New Zealand, I just want you to know, and you're listening to this, we're all very envious. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, and it might be a conspiracy theory that I might actually be starting here myself, but okay. rumour has it, and by rumour I mean me, yeah. that what they actually did to deal with the situation in New Zealand is they actually murdered everybody that was suspected of having COVID. <laughs> Do you know what? There's going to be people in Nigeria listening to this going, did you know in New Zealand? You just murdered everyone. Yeah. And you started it. You should be really proud of yourself for that, Harry. That's quite an achievement. If this takes off as a rumour, then just know that it started here. By the way, they didn't murder anybody in New Zealand. They just did a very good job. But... Guess what else has happened since our last podcast? There's a new president-elect. There is. So at the start of the last podcast, you might have heard we were absorbed with the coverage. We became CNN fanatics. We did. Never watched it ever since. Since Biden won, they lost my ratings. Who cares? Congratulations to Bryden and, uh, and Kamala Harris Trump. and Kamala Harris. Yeah, Kamala, isn't it? Is it Kamala? Is it Kamala? I thought it was Kamala. Kamala Harris. No, it's Kamala. Mm, I don't think it is. I think it's Kamala Harris. Mm, I, I read somewhere you should say it like the word comma. Where did you read that? Uh, good point. Um, 
Well, one of us is right. Anyway, <laughs> congratulations, to, <laughs> congratulations to both of them. Shall we get on to this week's episode? Yeah. Harry? Yes, Matt? Do you often find yourself sitting at the table after a long day of working, saving dogs in cages? Do you often sometimes sit back and ponder, what does it all mean? No. Do you often sometimes think about some of the big questions in animal welfare? No, not really. Why? Do you often sit and think, what do we mean when we say animal welfare? What is it to be an animal? What is it to be emotional? What is it to attach meaning to an actual animal out there? Do you ever sit and think that? No, no, never. Not once. Well, you see, the thing is, Harry, this week, our guest, well, he's a philosopher. Now, for those people who listen to this podcast, who, unlike Harry, have got some sort of 3D dimensionality to their personality um, and question things. And and maybe you're one of those people who thinks, what about these labels we attach to certain species? You know, big philosophical questions out there in animal welfare. Well, guess what? We're here. We are here now to help you. Aren't we, Harry? We are. Well, I'll tell you what. We and I do ponder those very questions. Always pondering. Always pondering. Honestly, Always ringing me. What the hell do you think we mean by this? Yeah, what? I'm often pondering these things. I'm actually pondering them right now. I'm pondering several things at once. I can multi-ponder. You're a multi-ponderer. I'm a multi-ponderer. And right now, I'm questioning a number of things. This entire podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly questioning where this intro is going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but actually, our guest on this podcast is somebody that I've actually admired for a very, very long time. Mark Rowlands, who is a writer and a professor of philosophy and one of the most prominent voices in animal rights and animal rights philosophy. And we're going to be talking to him about the principles of animal rights and ethics and all of the things that are the foundation for a lot of the work that we actually do in animal welfare. Why should we even care about animals? Why is it important to fight for animal rights? And we look at the philosophical perceptions of that and kind of explore those a little bit. And we also talk about the books that he's written, like a book that he wrote called The Philosopher and the Wolf, that are much more about an exploration of the human condition and life and death and love and the time that he spent living with a wolf that he owned as a pet, as he was a professor in university giving lectures. So it was actually a really fascinating conversation that covered a lot of different things. And we talked about some really deep stuff and some really nice personal recollections about living with a wolf called Brennan. Listening to him talk about Brennan and the relationship and the bond that he had with Brennan and then how that impacted his work and how he used that to think about animal rights more broadly. It was a really interesting, very different podcast for us. And that's what we want to do. We want to provide lots of different episodes. And it was fantastic talking to Mark. So I know people are going to enjoy this. Sit back, get on your, your couch, glass of red wine, close your eyes and ponder. And ponder what the meaning of everything is by listening to... This episode of the Animal Chat Podcast with Mark Rowlands. childhood i grew up um with different large dogs i mean first it was with labradors and then we kind of upgraded to great danes which my parents used to rescue you know so there were a lot of dogs and most of them were quite robust your work now a lot of it obviously you deal with philosophy from a number of different perspectives but a lot of your work has been in relation to philosophy to do with animal rights yeah. And so where did that interest stem from? What was it about the animal rights element that directed your philosophical thoughts? I suppose my, my first acquaintance with the idea of animal rights, like that of many people actually, was, was Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation. Mm. I think growing up with dogs had given me a kind of a respect for, well, for dogs at least, as complex, cognitive, emotional creatures, you know. So I think I was already primed for the kind of animal rights 
message, I suppose. It wasn't until I was at university and I read that book for the first time that I started putting, you know, two and two together. That you mm. know, I sort of loved dogs and it really wasn't a huge amount of difference between dogs and cows and pigs and other animals that we eat and treat in um, barbaric way. So something about that didn't seem right. Mm. There's something my father said also, which, you know, after I'd read Animal Liberation, but my father, he grew up in a little village outside Newport. And um, the Rowlands family at that time, they had a German shepherd called Rex and uh, a pig who, as far as I know, was nameless. And uh, my father was very fond of the German shepherd. He used to ride around the garden on his back. And um, he was also very fond of the pig, and he used to ride around the garden on his back. And, um, you know, by all accounts, Rex had a, a happy and fulfilled life, but things went somewhat differently for the pig. And something about that just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem um, justifiable. Hmm. And so um, that was one of my, I suppose, formative experiences, if you like, thinking about that that kind of disparity of treatment. I know that lots of people have highlighted Peter Singer's book. What was it about that particular text for you, Mark, that really ignited that path that you've later on gone down? Yes, now you're asking me to re- recount things from, I wish I could say it was half a lifetime away, but it's a lot more than that. <laughs> I think it was a very clearly written book. The case was very well made. It was made independent of any particular moral theory. I mean, Singer is well known for being a utilitarian. Uh, As a moral theory, I think that has various drawbacks. But the case he made for for animals just seemed so clear-cut. And as I say, independent of his utilitarianism. And I think it was just uh, very vividly presented and, and difficult to refute. You went to university to study philosophy. I originally went actually to do engineering, but I wasn't. Oh, really? I wasn't very good at that. So, <laughs> so luckily, I managed to talk my way into the uh, the philosophy department. And was that because at the time was it something that you thought might lead to something, or was it just something that interested you? It's something that interested me, uh, I suppose. And then when I realised that university lecturers get the whole summer off, well, that, that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> <laughs> When you were studying and realized you were going to go down that route, obviously you had these moments and reading Peter Singer's book meant that you clearly had an interest in going down that direction. But what did that path look like? Because there's a difference in being interested in something as part of something else and actually deciding that you were going to focus and then really explore it and then publish books on it and be a key focus area. So what was that journey like? And how receptive were the lecturers and your university to going down that route specifically? Oh, the animals route. Well, I think you know, philosophy, uh, I picked the wrong subject. Really. I think some of the most ridiculous things ever said about animals have been said by philosophers, you know, starting with, you know, Descartes, the father of modern philosophy, thought animals couldn't think or feel, you know, which is insane. But even today, or close to today, very good philosophers, philosophers who often say very good things about other subjects, they get kind of strange and wobbly when they get to animals and come up with ridiculous statements. Donald Davidson, for example, excellent philosopher, thought that animals couldn't have beliefs. They couldn't believe anything, which is insane. And it stemmed from a particular view of belief that he had. But um, I think the sort of guiding principle should be when you say things about things like the mind, about beliefs, thoughts and feelings and so on, you should test your theory against animals. And the sort of guiding assumption is that animals can think and feel. And any philosophical theory which implies they can't should be treated with uh, extreme caution. Sadly, from either philosophical or even scientific research approach with animals, the guiding principle is one of exception. Rather than assuming that they could, let's assume that they can't feel pain, have understanding, have moral reasoning. And until we can prove that they can, the assumption is that they can't because... Because it makes it easier for us because of the way that we use them and utilize them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when we're talking about animals thinking and feeling and having other mental states and processes, I mean, it was common in science. I think things are changing now, but it was common in science to hold them up to standards that no human could meet. So, you know, people talk about the problem of other minds. Well, how do you know that animals can think and feel when all you can see is their behavior? And you can make exactly the same point about humans. Mm. And they say, but humans can tell us how they feel. And the obvious response to that is, and you think animals can't. Hmm. So there was this general sort of idea that we had these standards that were so difficult to meet 
And we didn't apply them to humans. We only applied them to animals. And that led to um, decades and decades of people saying animals don't have minds. When we talk about do animals have minds, we talk about it from the things they feel. You know, do they feel pain? Because yeah. obviously there's suffering and therefore if an animal feels pain, then that's something that we should be seeking to avoid. But there's so much more to the concept of a mind. And so from the work that you do, what are the extra layers of that when you're talking about it from a philosophical standpoint, when we talk about the minds of an animal and what are the similarities or the differences, if there are any, between people and animals? Right. I, I think we can distinguish different sorts of layers of complexity, if you like. What's generally regarded as a lower level of complexity, you ask questions like, can animals feel things? Can they feel pain? Can they feel sad? Can they feel sorrow, frustration, things like that? Most philosophers, you know, who are cerebral people think that emotions of that sort are at some kind of lower level than things like thoughts and rationality. So if we accept that, then the next level will be, well, to what extent are animals capable of thinking? To what extent are they capable of reasoning? And questions like that. There's another question which arises about um, self-awareness. Are animals uh, aware of themselves? This is a sort of third layer of complexity, if you like. Mm. Are animals aware of themselves? And if so, in what sense? And then there's also a question of awareness of others. Are, are animals aware of others as persons? So those four different things, there's the sort of feeling, the, the sensation, the emotion on one level. There's the thought and rationality on another. There is the self-awareness. And there's also the other awareness. So four different layers of complexity, I think. In regard to those, picking the third level for an example, yeah. we had Laurie Marino on the first season of this podcast yes, talking yeah. about self-recognition tests in dolphins. And obviously, mm -hmm. we talked about the other animals that that's been done on great apes, elephants, and even, I think it was this year or last year, they've done it on fish, a ras, a type of fish. Yeah. They, again, used the same test and they were able to show because of the animal's behavior that with all likelihood, there was self-recognition. Yeah. And obviously, the more we do these tests on more different animals, the greater the likelihood is that we're going to see mm. that the majority of animals may have some level of self-awareness. Do you think that there is a, a degree of um, arrogance to this understanding? Because it's all very human-centric, isn't it? It's trying to measure animals by our own standards. And therefore, in some regards, we're almost setting them up to fail. Well, yes, the mirror test is a good example because it applies most obviously to visually oriented creatures such as ourselves. Mm. I mean, are you familiar with Mark Beckoff's yellow snow test? No, I'm not. Well, he, he devised it. I mean, the general principle has been tested in somewhat more stringent ways, but he, he set it up as a kind of olfactory version of the mirror test. So mm. Mark lives in Colorado. His dog at the time, called Jethro, when Jethro urinated in the snow, obviously the snow became yellow. And so what Mark did was, unbeknownst to Jethro, he would shovel up the yellow snow and move it to different places. And so the idea was that Jethro would, on his walks, encounter some yellow snow that'd been produced by him and other patches of yellow snow which hadn't been produced by him. And Mark looked at the amount of time Jethro would spend on each type of yellow snow. According to his results, Jethro was a lot less interested in the yellow snow that had been produced by himself, which seems to indicate some kind of grasp of the difference between stuff that has come from me and stuff that has come from someone else. It seems to be a form of self-awareness grounded in, in olfaction rather than um, vision. I love the idea of a legitimate scientific test based on the dog's preference for its own pee or another dog's pee. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does make sense for creatures that are driven by their noses as much as their eyes, you know. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. There have been somewhat more formal versions of that test, I believe, in recent years, which, you know, um, are not as, uh, not as impromptu and off the cuff as that. I bet they don't have as engaging a title as the yellow snow test, though. <laughs> I, I think that's what he called it, actually. Another area that you've worked on and is important, I think, in the way in which we perceive animals is the question of morality and whether morality as we understand it exists in other animals. Mm -hmm. And 
obviously you wrote in your book, Can Animals Be Moral? How does that link to our perceptions of animals and how we should be thinking about them? Yeah, I started working on this when I realized um, I became a father for the first time at the ripe old age of 44. And at the time my first son was born, there were two dogs living with us, Nina and Tess. Nina was a rather ferocious sort of German shepherd Malamute mix and Tess was a was a wolf dog mix, um, Brennan's daughter. And um, she was very sweet but had some highly developed predatory instincts. So I was a little worried about how the new house sharing arrangements were going to work. But um, I quickly realized that they were almost certainly better parents than I was, you know. And um, if my son made so much as a squeak in the middle of the night, then I'd immediately find these two cold, wet noses pressed up against my face saying, like, get up, you negligent parent, your son needs you sort of thing. And they doted on him. I was, I was always um, impressed by the level of patience, concern, tolerance that they exhibited towards him, you know, when he was doing things that they must have found annoying, like pulling their ears or playing dentist with them and things like that. And things like patience and concern and toleration, these are sort of moral categories. So this got me thinking about um, the question of whether animals can act morally. And um, I think the answer is basically, well... There's lots of different ways of being moral. And um, on some of those ways, I think animals can behave morally. In general, I mean, philosophers, many philosophers, and I'm thinking of people like Aristotle and Kant, two of the, the best philosophers ever, had very, what you might think of as um, intellectualist accounts of what it is to behave morally. So on their sort of view, when you behave morally, you have to be able to um, critically scrutinize your motivations. So the idea is something like this. You, you realize that you're inclined to act in a certain way, to do something or other. And then you should be able to ask yourself, I'm inclined to act in this way, but should I? Should I act on this impulse or should I resist it? And um, it's unlikely, I think, that most animals can critically scrutinize their motivations in that sort of way. But there's another tradition of thinking about um, moral behavior, which uh, stems from the philosopher David Hume, who thinks it's, it's, it has nothing to do with being able to critically scrutinize your motivations, ask yourself whether you should do this or should do that. Instead, uh, moral action is driven by emotions which have the well-being of another as their focus or object. Mm. And I think if you think of moral behavior in that way, which is a perfectly legitimate way of thinking of moral behavior, then many animals, I think the case is clearest for the social mammals, mm. but many of these can act morally. They can behave and act on the basis of moral reasons. What I was really interested in, Mark, is bringing you back to your, where you were, you were at university and you decided to go down the route of philosophy. And yeah. I wanted to know what opportunities were available to you as you were doing that degree at that point in time. Obviously, we know the industry's and this sector has developed a lot over the years. But what did it look like when you were leaving university? What sort of options were open to you? What did you think once you got out of university, this degree in philosophy, what, what did you want to do next in terms of what was open to you? Um, well, it was a pretty bad time in the job market. And I was told, everyone told me, there's no way you'll get a job. And for some reason, because I was too young to have experienced, you know, failure in all this sort of form. So I thought there was no doubt I would get a job. I absolutely positively would, no problem. In the end, a funny thing happened when I got my first job at the University of Alabama. Um, by a series of improbable accidents, really, I sort of um, fell into that job, which in hindsight, I was very lucky to get what a lot of people will know you most for, which is The Philosopher and the Wolf, the book that you wrote. And you mentioned Brennan just before. And so this was when you were uh, just started as a professor. Is that right? Yeah, I um, acquired Brennan about a couple of years after I arrived in, in Alabama, yeah. For people that don't know, Brennan was a, was a wolf or was uh, like a wolf-dog hybrid. The book, which I absolutely loved, Brennan is both a metaphor for many things that are the best element of humankind, as we would like to see it, but also as a tool to kind of explore things like happiness and life and death and all of those things. Yeah. And through the book, obviously, you go on this journey. But I'm assuming that obviously, when you first got Brennan, you weren't getting a wolf because you thought it would provide you with some kind of avenue like that. So what was your thinking when you first adopted him? And what was that like to kind of incorporate essentially a wolf into your life? 
Uh, well, I think the short answer is I wasn't thinking at all, and it was um, it was it was interesting. I mean, the Brennan had various um, foibles, let's call them, and um, one of them was he wouldn't, under any circumstances, allow himself to be left on his own. And so, I mean, part of the reason that I think there was such a bond between us is because we were barely out of each other's line of vision for the whole you know eleven years of his life. So. Um, when I went into the university to teach classes, he had to come too, you know. That raised some issues. When I, Any sort of socializing I did, bars and parties and so on, Brennan had to tag along. In many ways, as I discovered later, it's, it's almost like having a child in the sense that Brennan was very high maintenance, let's say. You know, with my current dog, the German Shepherd Shadow, you know, I, when I go into the university, well, I used to take him, but they banned dogs. So I, there was nothing to do with him, I'm sure. But uh, So now I'll just leave him on his own and he'll be fine for a few hours. Brennan, that just wouldn't happen. He would tear the house apart. From the point of view of how they engaged with other people and the environments that you were in, were there kind of some big noticeable differences there? Yeah, that, I think Brennan was... Uh, Probably the best way to describe him is his interactions with other humans. He was very aloof. He didn't care one way or another about other human beings. He was usually pretty, you know, he, was, he wasn't aggressive, but he just didn't um, care. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was a bit like having this huge cat, you know. Um, he was like that in various other ways too. I mean, sort of playing. You throw, throw a ball or stick for Brennan, he would just look at you like you were... You're insane, you know. <laughs> what do you mean, fetch? <laughs> if you wanted it so much, why did you throw it away in the first place sort of thing? Um, <laughs> I once caught him. He, I, I don't think he realized that I was watching him, but I once caught him playing with the ball. He threw it up in the air and would jump on it when it came down. And then he saw me looking, and I, I, I swear he looked embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did it take you before you decided that you wanted to write this book that's had such a such a huge impact on so many people Harry for example where does that fit in your whole journey with Brennan yeah that's when I got Brennan in the first place that this was completely unplanned um so we were living in France at the time in this little house and uh, one night after a few glasses of um red wine I, I just started writing writing down stories you know about um, what i remembered about brennan this was about six years after he died so i started just writing down stories about him and um found i really enjoyed remembering the things which are which you know sort of episodes that i hadn't thought about in years 15 years in some cases i enjoyed um remembering them and so i just kept writing and so again there was no planning or forethought as in most of the good things that have happened in my life completely unplanned you know and um that's basically how it happened and how long did it take for those stories and those memories to form the narrative that they did and for you to realize that there were some lessons there that you were discovering that the stories that you were remembering about Brennan had a had a deeper meaning in some ways you know when i'm writing something and i'm enjoying it i'll just keep on writing so this was sort of fairly um, intense, you know, hours and hours and hours, I'd, I'd sort of go at it. And um, I was just writing for myself because I thought no one would possibly be interested in this. And then one day my agent asked me, was I working on anything? And I said, yeah, just doing this thing, you know, no one's going to be interested in it. But she thought that people would. And so then I started thinking in terms of a book. Did the success of it surprise you when it really did become an international success? Um, yes, success always surprises me, actually. <laughs> So, yes, I think we can safely say I was quite surprised. I mean, I loved writing the book. That's often a good sign. You're not just going through the motions. You're really loving what you're doing. Um, when I look back on it, I think the various books I've written since that book came out in 2008, they've all been in one way or another kind of developments of certain themes that I had no idea I was developing when I started sort of writing the book. So, for example, the question of whether can animals be moral that in various ways arose from that book, a book on whether animals can be persons, because I'm pretty sure, you know, if Brennan wasn't a person, in the sense introduced by John Locke as a thinking, conscious, self-aware sort of subject of a life, mm. if Brennan wasn't a person, then no one was. And so all, all these different books that I find myself writing, by the time I get to the end of writing them, I realize they were developments of certain themes which appeared in sort of um, nascent form in, in The Philosopher and the Wolf. It's an incredible legacy from the point of view of Brennan. Yeah, I, I hope I was able to do him justice, actually, because um, he, he 
deserved it. What I love about that as well is is listening to you speak over sort of the last few minutes about the whole process is I'm a sort of a bit of a believer that when you have an animal, a dog or a cat, they teach you lessons sometimes about yourself. And I've had cats all my life and I now have two dogs for the first time. And Harry knows this, that um, before the dogs I have now, I was, I was scared of dogs. And right. one thing they've taught me that had never, I'd never had an opportunity to find it out about myself is the joy I find in seeing something or someone else happy. And yeah. it's a level of joy. And I have a, a cocker spaniel and the joy of watching her in the woods or in an open field running and catching scents, it's, I have never experienced that joy in my life. And that is something that I never knew was in me. I knew I, I felt empathy and altruism and all these things, but yeah. that kind of joy, the dogs that I have now just lit inside me is something... Yeah me so in that I know I know you've touched on it with certain themes but was there one particular thing that that whole process maybe taught you about yourself that you didn't know I think I realized um it was a a run that Brennan and I went on this this was shortly before he died and Nina and Tess uh Tess was his daughter Nina was his, his friend he, he was very ill he had cancer and um I just put them in kennels for a few days because I figured he needed a bit of a break and then one afternoon, shortly after lunch, he decided he wanted to go for a run. And I always knew when he wanted to go for a run because he would jump on the settee and howl, you know. <laughs> In his earlier days, he would jump on the settee, run up the wall, spin around and run back down again. But those days were gone by then. And so we went for this run and things started to kind of crystallize, you know. Um, I figured that... Basically, there are two sorts of things we do in life. One sort of thing we do because we want some external reward. The most obvious example is we work because we want to get paid. But there are other things we do, and we do them just for their, their own sake. We do them because we want to do them, and at, at that particular time, there might be nothing more we want to do. And I think dogs have got that kind of skill. I think when people talk about the meaning of life... That is what we're talking about. So, you know, the meaning of life is to find things in your life that you just want to do and do them. And if you can get someone to pay for them, that's great too. But um, when I was writing that book, I was doing it just because I wanted to do it. There was no thoughts of writing a book. I was just writing down stories because I enjoyed doing it. I think dogs and children, actually, they understand that the really important things in life are the things you would do anyway even if no one forces you to or rewards you or threatens you or whatever. You do them because you want to do them. And so there's a kind of demarcation of what's important in life and what isn't. Yeah, I think that's something that anybody who has a dog is going to be able to understand. Uh, we have a dog here as well, and my wife sometimes complains that I pay more attention to the dog than I pay to her. <laughs> but one of the things that I tell her is one of my greatest joys, which is exactly what Matt was saying there, is being able to take my dog out and see joy in its purest form. And it's like what you said, you see that in children, but you also see it in other animals as well. You know, when yeah. a cow gets taken out to a field and you see it bounding around, yeah. Yeah. that complete not aware of anything else other than the joy that it's feeling in that moment. Yeah. My dog, she was a rescue. She had a horrible upbringing, kept in awful conditions. She was used as a, as a breeding bitch. And we rescued her and she was a shell of a dog when we got her. And in yeah. the intervening years, she has become more and more of a dog. And every year that goes past, there is some discovery. I remember the first time she discovered she could play with toys. And a year ago, she discovered digging. She had never dug at all. And now anytime there's a bit of sand or earth, yeah. she will dive in there and she will dig and she will roll yeah. around in it. And the undeniable joy and pleasure on her face yeah. in that moment is yeah. something really beautiful to behold. And it's wonderful to be able to see that in something else, even if you maybe aren't in a position where you feel that kind of completely pure joy yourself. To see it in another creature is something very special. Yeah, yeah. I think we, we all knew this once, and then it's something we forgot, you know, when we, we started mm. the great game of growing up and becoming someone, you know. Uh, I think children know, and dogs, 
probably know the meaning of life a lot better than we do. I would like to put a caveat, though, with that. The rage that you feel when you see a Labrador roll in poo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or rolling in a dead bird. Or rolling in anything. Or, or eating a pack of chewing gum. There's two sides to that coin, isn't there? Because <laughs> the dog meaning of life doesn't, doesn't mean it has to be yours. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm heavily medicated, Mark. <laughs> it's like having bipolar dogs, let's just say that. Um, I'm really interested in as well is when you have such a book that, you know, we're on this podcast talking to you about it, it does that bring you a certain amount of joy? Is it something that when you're writing your next book, when you have that sort of success, are you trying to emulate that success? Are you trying to, can you move on from that success? Is, is it strange that, people still talk to you about that book and you know is there a confliction that you would you either want them to talk about books that came beforehand or afterwards how did you feel about that whole experience and how's it influenced your behavior and thinking about I suppose the whole process of writing ever since that's interesting I think if you um if you think in terms of emulating success then you're going to fail you know I think the best rule in writing is just to write what interests you and um, if the success comes it comes and if it doesn't it doesn't it goes back to the idea of you know doing things either for their own sake or doing things for the sake of something else. So if you think of well, success, well, success is then then the goal. Then you're not writing for its own sake anymore. You're writing for the sake of a future goal. And I think um, in most spheres of human activity, the results of that kind of uh, way of thinking are never great. In both the, the sort of the arts and sciences, if you're motivated, right, I want to succeed then probably the work you'll produce isn't, isn't going to be great. My feeling is you should simply do whatever interests you and then the rest will take care of itself or, or not. Have your views and do your views on philosophical beliefs and principles, do they continue to evolve? Or is it something that, I mean, I, I would imagine there are certain foundational principles that, that you believe and are, are absolute. But are there other aspects of, you know, when you're writing a book or going down a particular path that change and evolve? Uh, I'd like to think so. I don't know. I mean, um, I'm probably getting a bit old to evolve now, but um, <laughs> what, what I tend to find is that when I think I'm working on something new, I'm not at all. I'm working on something I thought a long time ago but didn't really know what I was thinking. Hmm. And the, the, say, the relation between the book, The Philosopher and the Wolf, and my subsequent books has been about this. They're, they're all kind of developments of certain themes that I just broached, but didn't develop in that. And so I, I suspect that I'm kind of at that stage now where I'm just working out thoughts I once had, but didn't know I had, if you know what. I was interested in why you were you were talking before there, Mark, was what is the field of philosophy and, and animal rights, animal welfare? How's that changed over the last sort of 25, 30 years? And what sort of place is it now? Are there lots of people still getting involved in the area? Is there lots of new thinking? Is it, are there challenges to getting people to work in this field? What does the scene, if I want to call it, look like right now? Yes, it's, it's not a highly rewarded area of philosophy in the sense of the challenges you might be thinking of. So the world's great universities, their philosophy departments are not going to look at someone and say, oh, they wrote a book on animal rights, let's give them a job, because it's, it's not that kind of feel. I mean, if, if you do it, it's because you want to do it and not because you, um, you think there are going to be significant rewards in that sense that, are, that attach to it, rewards beyond the, the simple doing of it. But more generally, I think the way things have gone in, in animal rights literature over the past 40 years, say, there, there have been three kind of um, discernible waves, if you like. And the first wave was dominated by people like Peter Singer and Tom Regan. So what you've got there is a kind of, it's a debate between utilitarians who think, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number, that's Singer on one hand, and there's Tom Regan on the other who thinks, no, there are rights that you have, natural rights that you have in virtue of the sort of creature you are. And so there was this kind of debate between utilitarians and rights-based or deontological views, which mirrored a debate that was going on in moral philosophy at the time anyway. That was the first kind of wave. And there's only so much you can do in the first wave because that debate is a sort of old one. 
The second wave was kind of um, expansion in conceptions of moral theories. With Singer and Regan, you had utilitarianism versus rights or deontological-based theories. Then you had people like um, Rosalind Hursthouse who started thinking in terms of uh, virtue ethics. Can we talk of the moral status of animals in terms of virtue ethics? Would a virtuous person do the sorts of things we do to animals and so on? I suppose my role in that was to introduce the idea of um, to, to animal rights, what's called contractualism or contractarianism, a different type of moral theory. The idea behind contractualism is that moral theories are based on um, hypothetical agreements that people would make. It's a sort of, you know, if you don't stab my back, I won't stab yours kind of thing. And morality comes out of, out of that. Now, most people thought that contractualism of this sort was incompatible with the idea that animals had rights or moral status because they're not the sorts of creatures you can enter into agreements with. So one of the things I did was argue against that and show, in fact, that the most plausible versions of contractualism were perfectly compatible with the idea of animal rights. In more recent years, there's been a lot of interest in um, theories of of ethics, which are based on um, sentimentalist theories, and whether you can sort of incorporate um, discussions of animal rights in those sorts of terms. So the second wave then was a kind of expansion of the types of moral theories you bring to bear on the understanding of animals and their moral status. What I think of as the third wave, which is ongoing, is a kind of um, expansion in our conception of animals. Because there was a kind of implicit sort of view of animals involved in the first wave, you know, and the, the most important thing was to make sure that they're happy and not suffering. So there was a tendency to think of animals as um, defined basically by their uh, feelings. And if you can ensure that in an animal's life there's more feelings of pleasure than there are feelings of pain, then you're doing all right by the animal. When you think about it, if you brought a human being up on those principles, the result would be a sort of sad waste of a life, right? There's much more to life than simply pleasure versus pain. There's all these other capacities that humans have for um, friendship, thought, rationality, and um, things like that. And so um, I think the third wave is an expansion in the, in the idea of animals. They're not just feelers of pleasure or pain. They're also complex cognitive emotional beings that have various capacities, natural capacities, which need to be um, fulfilled if they're to have a decent or, or meaningful life. So this kind of third wave, it's all to do with expanding our conception of animals and, and seeing them for um, the sort of uh, complex creatures that they are. When people think about philosophy, animal rights philosophy, we talk about all of these things from morality to ethics to what it means to be a person, to be an animal, to feel, to understand, to yeah. have a sense of self, to have a sense of future, all of these things. And for people working in animal welfare, you have to then factor into that the practicality of justifying an animal welfare program. Say, for example, we're talking about animals in zoos. Yeah. And if you want a campaign to stop animals being kept in captivity, then these philosophical elements to do with the rights of an animal can seem a bit overwhelming. And so if we're to bring it down to a practical level, if you're going to develop a campaign, but want the foundation to be based on these moral principles, yeah. what would those core moral principles look like? Here's one way of thinking about it. And this divorces the whole thing from any particular moral theory. I think, um, think of, say, the golden rule, you know, do what you would like others to do unto you kind of thing. Um, think of that as the core moral principle. A way of doing that is to use a, a sort of imaginative device dreamed up by the philosopher John Rawls. Rawls talked about an original position. And in the original position, you have to try to imagine that you don't know who you are. You don't know what race, gender, socioeconomic bracket you belong to. You don't know your natural abilities, whether you're intelligent or not, athletically gifted or not. You know nothing about yourself. You can't imagine it, of course, really, but just sort of try. Imagine that you can imagine it. And the idea is you ask yourself, well, if I didn't know any of this, how would I like the world to be? Mm. The application to animals is easy. There's one more thing you don't know in this original position behind this veil of ignorance, as Rawls put it. You also don't know what species you belong to. And then you ask yourself, well, if I didn't know this, how would I like the world to be? And it's just a graphic way of thinking about what the golden rule, if you like, entails. And the idea behind that is that it's, I guess, to do with the fairness 
of a decision-making process, isn't it? Yeah, that's all about fairness. It's, it's like if you were dividing up a pizza and you wanted to do it fairly, but past history suggests that you haven't exactly been fair in the slicing of pizzas before, then the idea is you don't know beforehand which slice you're going to get. And then any basis for partiality has basically been removed. And I think, you know, if, if, if uh, morality or ethics are about anything at all, then they must be about impartiality to some extent. How does the work that you do relate directly with some animal rights organizations? You're writing these books and you're defining these principles. And obviously, myself included, there are individuals and organizations that look at this and, and use them as, as a foundation. But are you directly involved with animal rights or animal welfare organizations or campaigns or anything like that? Uh, no, no, not. No one's ever asked me. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd be absolutely delighted to help out in any, any way I could. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, and honestly, if, I'm, I'm being completely serious about that. I'd be delighted to be involved in some way. It's kind of surprising that you haven't been. But, uh, well, if, um, <laughs> if you're out there listening, podcast listeners, um, there you go. You got a green light from Mark Rowlands to be more directly involved in animal welfare campaigns. <laughs> I think there's definitely an opportunity there. I should add, I never answer my email, so that may have something to do with it. But, uh... <laughs> well, I'm grateful you answered mine. Oh, no. uh, the last thing I really want to ask is, based on all of the work that you've done and your understanding of these situations and realizing how this theory of philosophy, as you've already mentioned, is evolving, how hopeful are you are that continuing down this path, we're going to have a great enough respect and understanding for animals that all of the things that we see as, as wrong now in regards to animal welfare and animal rights will get to a point where from a philosophical, moral, ethical standpoint, we're going to reach a point where we just have to make the decision that what we're doing cannot be done anymore. Without wanting to sound too sort of biblical, it's rare that we, we humans walk down the path of righteousness for its own sake. More often, we're kind of drag kicking and screaming down that path. I think mm. um, there are certain issues which are coming to a head, which I think uh, will ultimately spell the end for, for example, animal farming. Mm. The issues are that well, there's climate change, there's mass extinction of species, and there's this sort of um, plague or pestilential circumstances that we find ourselves in today. Animal farming, uh, the meat industry, is basically at the heart of all these problems. It's not, not the most important driver of climate change, but it is one of the simplest things we can do to stop it, is stop eating animals. Mm. The reason so many species are going extinct is because we're clearing so much land and we're doing that almost exclusively for, for the purposes of uh, grazing animals or growing animal feed crops. Mm. The majority of temperate diseases we get and the vast majority of tropical diseases are zoonoses. They're transmitted to us from animals. And they're transmitted either because we eat animals or because we disturb environments because we want to graze animals on those environments. I think when you look at uh, probably the three gravest environmental crises we face today, the animal industry, the animal husbandry industry, uh, the meat industry is central to all of them. A prudential reason then for giving up the eating of animals at least. You know, uh, I think we, we have to if we want a, a remotely um, suitable planet. <laughs> Well, Harry, does that answer all your questions about animal welfare? It answers a lot of my questions, but it poses a lot of other questions because that, Matthew, is the nature of philosophy. Nailed it. Nailed it. That's a microphone drop moment you just did there. Isn't it, though? But it was really fascinating to talk to Mark. I mean, it was really lovely to hear about, as you mentioned in the intro, about his bond with Brennan and the things that he learned about himself and about life and about animals from seeing it through the eyes of, of a wolf. But also, it was just fascinating to explore all of those elements that are so important to the work that we and other people do in animal welfare and animal rights in relation to understanding why it is that we do these things, why these things are important, and giving us a couple of different ways of thinking about it. I thought it was really fascinating, and it was a real pleasure to talk to Mark because he's somebody that I've admired for a long time, and it was great to be able to speak to him finally. Yeah, exactly. 
I also thought it was really interesting about his relationship with Brennan because it got me thinking about something that we've talked about a lot. You know, having those physical relationships with animals and how that can really determine how you view things. And and it can often be very life changing for a lot of people. What kind of physical relationship do you have with your dogs? Well, listen, (laughs) just choose your words very carefully there, Matt, because what I meant was like, okay, please explain. Yes. The sort of relationship you can build by interacting on a daily basis with an animal like a wolf. And it often got me thinking, we've talked about this, but what would you do if you had the opportunity to raise a lion cub or a tiger cub or a sloth or a cheetah or a rhino, you know? And, and I often sit and wonder, would I have the emotional resilience to say, nope, I don't think that's an ethical thing to do? Or would I actually have the voice in my head be like, Matthew? You could raise a tiger cub. Is that what the voice in your head sounds like? Yes, all the time. Jesus. Yeah, I know. It explains a lot of my behaviour, doesn't it? It's no wonder you're so fucked. Yeah, Matthew. It's 10am, but you can still have scotch. It's fine. (laughs) No one will know, Matthew. (laughs) Oh, dear. So... We will be having another episode of the Animal Chat podcast with you in a couple of weeks' time. We will indeed. We have a fantastic guest, but you'll have to wait until then to find out who it is, won't you, Harry? They will. Listeners, you will have to wait and find out, but I'll tell you what, it's going to be well worth the wait. It's going to be a cracker. Oh, it's going to be an absolute cracker. But in the meantime, what do we want people to do, Matt? Please leave us a review, maybe subscribe, share our podcast so we can get the stories of these people out there so people can listen to them. Go back, listen to some of our other episodes. We've got some amazing episodes in both season one and season two of the Animal Chat podcast. Go back and listen to our back catalogue. If you haven't listened to all the episodes of Animal Chat podcast, well, first of all, what the hell are you doing with your life? I mean, seriously. Yeah. Call yourself an animal lover and you haven't listened to all the episodes of Animal Chat podcast. Mm. Get with it, people. You're in a lockdown. What the hell else are you supposed to be doing right now? So go and have a listen to the other episodes. You won't regret it. And if you do, keep that to yourself. But have a listen. Enjoy, like, subscribe, share, and come back in a couple of weeks for the next one. It's going to be a cracker. But until then, stay safe, people. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Social distance. Wash your hands after the toilet. Yeah, that's not a COVID thing, though. That's just general hygiene. Yeah, that's just general advice from me. That's just general <laughs> advice to everyone. Have a good week, everyone. Bye. See you soon. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>